Welcome, welcome, welcome to Look at California Film, Minnesota, everybody's favorite cinema podcast. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I am the Look at California portion of this program. I am an acting coach and a writer out here in sunny Southern California, and I am joined by the adorable, the lovely, everybody loves Barry, Barry Anderson in Minnesota. To introduce yourself, Barry. Yeah, I'm a director here based in Minnesota. Um, since I don't have the looks of uh, Mr. McCaffrey, I am, uh, I am the feeling part. So I'm the emotional one on this podcast. So if there's going to be tears. It's coming from me. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're, 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 we're enjoying our, uh, our quarantining by talking about uh, movies that you should rewatch or that you, if you missed the first time, go back and rewatch. That should be available on most of the services you already subscribe to or for free. And today, Mike, why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about? Because this is your pick. Pick number two this on Mike's is, quarantine list. This is my pick on the quarantine list. And uh, it's an interesting pick. I'm excited for this conversation. It is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from 2011. It's directed by Tomas Alfredson. And it stars a murderer's row of British actors. Uh, stars Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, John Hurt. Toby Jones, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, Kieran Hines, and on and on and on. Uh, it is based on the John le Carre novel of the same name, Tinker Jailer, Soldier Spy. Um, the film was a moderate success. It had a budget of $21 million and brought in $80.6 million. It was nominated for three Oscars, uh, including... Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Actor for Gary Oldman. It won none of those, um, but it, it did. Good try, did, good try. Yeah, hey, it did win uh, the BAFTA Award for best, best British Film that year. And I chose it because I, I'm an odd person. And for some reason, I get addicted to certain movies that are sort of unexplainable which my my entire list thus far for the quarantine film list have been <laughs> films i get addicted to so zodiac was my first one which i just got addicted to and tinker taylor soldier spy is the second one and i whenever i stumble across this film uh it was on cable not that long ago i will watch it from wherever i pick it up and just watch it till the end and it was really interesting watching it again for the podcast because I'm trying to figure out why that is, why I'm addicted to it. And I have a bunch of thoughts as to why that is, um, but we will dive into it. But since I'm the good looking one in, in this uh, <laughs> podcast, which by the way, it is a horrifying thought when I'm, when I'm, <laughs> when I'm the standard bearer for looks, we, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world. Um, so let's hear what, uh, Mr. Minnesota has to say about this. Barry Anderson, what did you think of Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy? So I saw this movie when it first came out back in 2011. Um, and that was the only time I've seen it until I watched it last night before the podcast. Um, and so the, the thing is, this movie, as a cinephile, as someone who enjoys not just is the movie and story entertaining, the actual craftsmanship of hundreds of different departments that go into it, this is like on the Mount Rushmore. Like every detail of every department in this movie is almost flawless. And I was looking back, because obviously it is a murderer's row of actors. Um, and 
several of the people in there were kind of coming into their own you know, around the time this movie came out. I know Benedict Cumberbatch is now kind of on everyone's mind, but this was before he did Sherlock. I think he was in War Horse the same year. Um, so this was kind of part of his coming out when he was really kind of turning into a star. And there were several, you know, people like that. But this movie, when you see who's in it, like every time you cut to another scene, you're like, oh my God, they're in it too. And what I love is it's so subtle, but therein lies the problem. <laughs> For this is when people ask, like, you know, would you recommend a movie? And we'll give our recommendations at the end. But this is that sort of movie that is a little bit more of an international art house feel. It's not really an art house movie, but the pacing and how the story is told is not necessarily readily accessible to all audiences in the States. Um, and therefore, I think some people think it's boring. I think some people think, yeah, you know, there's not enough like high stakes and kind of, you know, reveals and stuff like that because this movie kind of burns at a, a different pace and a different kind of tone than a lot of movies are. So I think this is a very polarizing. I think people, before they listen to this, have they seen it, whether you loved it or hated it, um, it still might be worth a revisit. But if you're like, I'm super tired tonight and I need something just to cheer me up because I'm depressed or you know want to laugh, this would not be the movie for yeah, you. Go elsewhere. Not, <laughs> you yeah. need to go elsewhere for that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think in terms of a movie on its totality, in terms of just the utter brilliance that went into it, it's, it ranks right up there. In terms of the enjoyability of watching, it's more of a mood movie for me than it is, you know. But I mean, I, yeah, I think it's going to be fun to talk about because I think I'm very curious to hear kind of what resonates with you. And I'll tell you some of the things that resonated. But this was a movie that I had to look deeper you know, I was looking at things like the art direction or the production design or how they were crafting different things as opposed to just, okay, what's the plot? What's the emo character's emotions? And what am I trying to kind of figure out and feel during it? I, I definitely had to dig deeper to stay engaged in the movie. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by, Barry. Really appreciate your comments. Uh, All right, Mike, take it away from here. <laughs> we're going to go to line two. Doug from Seattle, you're on. Um, okay. so. Yes, I agree with you. Um, in in the broadest terms, I agree with you. It's it's a really strange movie to categorize. It is because it it is it does have an art house sensibility to it, and yet it is not an art house film. No, not, it, not at all. It, because it, an art house film would be much more like random and the structure yeah. would be all kind of that that's not this movie but it like yeah i think you said like what did you you didn't say tone that's uh, sensibility yeah i Sens think yeah. perfect birth. It, it, it's in sensibility it feels like an art house movie even though it's not and and it is what's really great about it what I, part of why i really love it is what you had mentioned about just the craft that went into it on every level every level it, it is the the art direction, the production design are simply gorgeous yes. and not gorgeous in terms of how to how they look, but they are so precise and detailed and specific. And the costume design is great. Um, the sound and the music in yes. this movie is so well I done. I don't know that much about music. I don't know if it's an oboe or something. There's is there's a there's a, a wood wood you know air instrument in there that's one of the driving forces and it is yeah. so perfectly suited for the mood. Um, every time it came on, I'm like, yes, I love this. I absolutely <laughs> love it. 
it, it's just, it, and the film is great and, and the production design and the costume and, and the cinematography, which we'll get into, um, they, they all set the mood. Yes. And what I, what I enjoy about the film is that, now I enjoyed this film when I first saw it. I had, I had a, an experience of like, oh, well, huh, what, what's that about? And then I saw it again and I was like, ah, okay. Yeah. And I had never read the John le Carre novels um, with George Smiley, uh, who's the lead character in this uh, film. And I went and read some of them. I didn't read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but I did read some of the other ones. And um, it's very interesting. If you have read the le Carre novels, I mean, you should love this movie. There's no doubt. What's so interesting about the movie is that it's almost like it, there's a game. It's a game you're watching, and yet you are thrust into the game, and the game's already started. Like we're we're mid second quarter, and you're <laughs> thrown in, and you're like, oh, we might even be in the second half, and yeah. it's just like, whoa, and you got to catch up, and. So you're, you're sort of catching up. It's like you jump into a river and the river's just dragging you along. And then at some point you climb out and the story's over. River keeps going. Yep. And it's conscious of that, that you are simply spending a little bit of time with these people and in this game. And it's pretty intense. And the filmmaking, uh, the, the direction is in its way, it is spectacular how yep. well this is directed. And the director is this guy, Thomas Al Alfredson, who is... I want to make sure I get the country right. Um, he is Swedish. Swedish. And I think the fact that English is not his first language benefits him greatly in telling the story because he's adapting a novel. And th the problem when you adapt a book is that it, you end up getting a little bit too wordy and you get away from what cinema is, which is show, don't tell. Well, that's not a problem for Alfredson. He shows things even almost too quickly he'll show things and uh for instance there's a uh, it's one shot it's quite amazing that he pulls this off but there's this um the head of this british spy agency his name is control or that's what he's called yeah and he uh this is not really a spoiler alert but he dies and um you know it's not a very dramatic moment they just show a shot of it, just one. Yeah. And they don't even say, oh, he's dead. They just like, oh, that guy looks like he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and it's like, oh, okay, they're moving on. And I think Alfredson, who, he, he, the film he did prior to this was uh, Let the Right One In, which is this um, vampire film. And they did an American remake of it. And the original, the Swedish original, I highly recommend to people if they are into that sort of thing. It is spectacularly well done. It is really a great movie. And Alfredson brought that sensibility to this film, the, the moodiness, the, um, the economy of language, and the, 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 the fluency of his cinema, uh, his cinematic language is, is really striking. So to, to get into it a little bit deeper. Before you jump there, I want to comment okay, on something. Ahead. You made the uh, kind of the uh, analogy that you're jumping into a game, you know, second quarter after mid. I'd almost like to take it a sense further. Yes, it's like a who's done it kind of a, a 
you go, you want to figure out kind of all the players and how they come together and what really happened, but almost you don't really know the rules of the game on top of it yeah. because it's really weird. I think one of the problems people have with it is it's already a period piece and they do a little bit of time jumping, but then there's things that happened both in present time and present post when things were supposed to not be happening. So it, it can be very confusing as to like, wait a minute, is this earlier? Is this, and I think it's all done intentionally, but it means that you really, really have to pay attention and you really have to work for it. I, th- I wanted to make a m- mention is when uh, John Hurt, who I love and has recently passed away, uh, who actually played Control, that the scene when he passes away and they just show it, what's great is it forces the audience to be like, well, is he dead or not? Is this right. fake or not? And it, it, it's, it's kind of like they never commit to almost anything until like the last third or even quarter of the movie where they start to be like, okay, this is now real and this isn't going to change on you. So it's kind of like someone's juggling and as the movie goes, they keep throwing stuff to juggle. And at yeah. some point you're like, I can't possibly juggle all this. I don't even know what color, what's going on. And then as it starts to come, you know, someone comes in and takes one thing away, takes one thing away. And at the end, you're still kind of juggling because you got to jump out of this river that's still going to move when we're done. And so I think it's an exhausting movie in a sense for people intellectually to experience. And I think that's why it works, but also why it's a different sort of movie that I don't know how to compare it to another one. Yeah. And it's in terms of being a spy film, it's just not what we've been conditioned to expect. It's not mission impossible. It's not James Bond. It's not any of that sort of thing. It, it really is um, an experiential thing where you are thrown into this, very confusing upside down thing where you don't know what's who to believe, what to believe. And there it is. And so just like George Smiley, you have to figure it out and be like, wait a minute, what is going on here and what is real and what isn't. And what's interesting about Alfredson is that he, um, he messes with perspective in so many different ways. And so just in camera work, like there's this, there's a scene that they often refer back to throughout the film of a Christmas party. So the, yeah. the spy agency is having a Christmas party and it seems like any other office Christmas party. It seems people are too drunk, people are obnoxious, you know, there's music and all this stuff. But what's so interesting is he takes the camera and it's in the room with the party. And then sometimes he'll put it outside of the room. So it's looking through a window and the sound is different. Yeah. And you realize as you're doing it, um, you're supposed to be from George Smiley's perspective, but then you're realizing you are, you're on the outside. Yeah. And he's sort of locked out of the in-group. And then you're on the inside and you realize, oh, he's sort of on the outside. He doesn't know what's going on. And it's very disorienting for the character and for the viewer to sort of be like, wait, why is, why is that happening? And I just appreciated that shit. Now, other people may think like, oh, what, what is going on? That, that doesn't, that doesn't resonate with me or I feel uncomfortable with that on an unconscious level, which I think is the point of it. It is. And, and so I really loved how he did that sort of stuff. The other thing he does, um, which we talked about a little bit with Hiller high water last time out is, uh, he'll do shots where you're behind the main character or a main character. And you just see the back of his head and, in a normal movie, you'd be getting a reaction shot. Yes. And in this movie, you don't get it. Correct. You just get the back of their head. And it's literally, you are being, you are being forced to project onto that character your reaction to the information they just received. And it's really, really fascinating. 
um, well, that, that does that. And he did some of those shots. I remember that you're talking about when it was on the back of someone's head, but then what also he did a lot, which is very weird is there was a lot in this movie. So like, even though it's like a slow burn, I mean, there's it is, it is at a you. sprawling story. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's it is sprawling. There are so many characters. Lord of the Rings, so much going on. In this, yeah. like you know, you're, you're where, where, what, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff. But what's crazy is I'd say it was at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen times, he would have a scene where a character would like be walking and then stop and be thinking. Yes, and he would run it for like a minute. Yeah, and it's like it, it, it again that uncomfortable like. What am I supposed to be looking at? What am I thinking? What is he thinking? How does this tie in? And then they just jump back and you're like, I don't really know what that was for. And I think what's really crazy, like this is where it'd be almost fun, even though I think you'd have to do it in groups, almost like you would in a, in a college setting, is you'd go back and try to figure out which ones were intentional and which ones were the MacGuffins. Which ones yeah. were the ones what, you know, oh, they might be getting too close to following this. So I'm going to throw a few things in there just to make them confused again. And I think, because there's such a craft and a precision to that is why you feel so it's not like you're lost but it just feels like you're like what the hell i can't get a grasp on any of this and that's all by design because i think in real life if you're going to do this sort of investigation if you commit way too early you're going to go down the wrong rabbit hole so it's yeah. kind of like you need in most people aren't willing to be that patient like you know, a good investigator is going to be patient and kind of take in all the BS and all the stuff and be able to filter it out. But most of us just want like, Oh, I know who it is. I'm going to wait for this to pay off. And if you, if, if, if the director allowed for people to make those choices earlier, then I think they'd be frustrated in how it turned out or like then things wouldn't work and they'd be angry. So I think it's a, a, an intentional, you know, don't make a decision yet. <laughs> yeah. Wait, stay with my story. And I think that frustrates people, but I think it's a very, I think it's a really hard thing to do. So from, again, from that craftsman standpoint, tip my hat. It's like, it's yeah. incredible to watch. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting just in terms of the story structure. Um, I thought of briefly as I watch it, cause they're, they're not similar films. This film is set in the 1970s. Um, but Nobody in the movie, in this spy movie, until the very end, has a gun. Correct. Yeah. And by the way, that scene, we could talk about it, but finish your sentence. I want to go back to that scene. Yeah. So nobody has a gun. And it just sets up an interesting dynamic because there is tension there. And yet, there's no overt threat of like, oh, you're going to get shot or this and that. And, you know, like a Chinatown in... Uh, which was made in the seventies. Um, it was an interesting choice for Jack Nicholson to be a private investigator who doesn't carry a gun. Yes. And it sets up a whole, an interesting dynamic throughout the entire film. Well, everybody of, he meets then he, you always assume he's at a disadvantage and it's exactly great. it adds, yeah. it adds that conflict that should be there, but it, it and, is weird in this movie that, you know, you knew that all these people were powerful enough to do something. Yeah. You know, so there was, I think that inherent, but it wasn't, yeah, like you said, it's not there's overt. A, there's, an, there's an inherent danger, and part of that is just the filmmaking. It sets it up through mood, but you just don't know with people, right? Yeah. So everybody's a threat, and you just don't know how they're a threat. Correct. And that's really the interesting part to me. Um, and, and ultimately, through the story, you realize that uh, other weapons have been used to yes. hurt George Smiley. So a lot of it's... Uh, office politics and intrigue 
that hurt him. He was wounded by that. A lot of that is his personal life. He was wounded by that. He has weaknesses there. And so the idea of like, you know, James Bond carries a special gun and all that stuff. Like, this is a real thing. And of course, John yeah. le Carre, who wrote it, uh, wrote the novel and all these novels, uh, was early in his life in the spy service. And so that's why his books are sort of famous um, for being so realistic and stuff. And, and that's what the movie is. I, I, go ahead, what you were going to say about uh, so, what's great, the, the gun reveal. Yeah, The gun reveal was so fascinating to me because you, you started seeing several people get guns. It was almost like everybody was arming up. And then what was great is the lead character played by Gary Oldman. He's sitting there. I think it was in his house. I don't think it was his office. But he pulls out like a zipper pouch yeah, yeah. that he stores it in. It's not a gun case. It's almost like he filed it away for future use. Yeah. And it was upside down. And it's just everything about it, when I saw it, everybody else, you know, was getting it and kind of going in. And then when he did it, it, it like spoke to the character. Like you didn't really understand why, but immediately you knew that he was different than everyone else. And I was like, what a clever way. I can't imagine me ever thinking, man, I should, I should store, I should have the character store a gun in a Ziploc pouch you know, well, you know what's crazy continue. about that scene? That scene actually happens at the safe house where he's setting up this quote-unquote ambush. Oh, you're right. Yeah, right. You're and, right. And so he carried there his he gun there, there yeah. in like basically a makeup bag. It is. Right? It's, like a, it's, a, <laughs> it's crazy. Like the one you used to have for like your erasers and pens in grade yeah. school. And you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. And so it's just so interesting that like, and he, it's a very deliberate shot. It's quite well done and where he unzips it and yes. pulls the gun out and it's like ah okay so we're here we go yeah this is where we we understand that we're in the sort of final stages of what's happening um and i want to talk about the structure of this movie which is as we said the story is just this sprawling thing it's i mean it's set in london but we you know we go to istanbul we're in russia where it, it's just all over the place and uh but the structure of the movie is fascinating. As I said, it opens up, you're thrust into a game and you have to figure out the players and what's happening. George Smiley is the lead character played by Gary Oldman, a very great performance by him. He doesn't say a single word until you're 15 minutes into the movie. Yep. Doesn't say anything, <laughs> nothing. And then he has his first words. It isn't until 30 minutes into the movie that the character of his wife, whose name is Anne, is even mentioned. And yet she is a pivotal character in this movie. Correct. And not only is she a pivotal character in, the, in this movie, as is this Russian character named Carla, who is a man, who is sort of the uh, George Smiley of the Soviet spy service, you never see Carla or Anne's face in the movie. They never say anything. You never... You hear people talk about what they said or what they did, but you never see them from the front. You never get a full shot of them. You never ever. So they're this mystery. They're both these sort of elusive ghosts that you're chasing. And another interesting thing is 45 minutes into the movie is when you jump into the, uh, the Tom Hardy character, whose name is Ricky Tar, yes. or as they say in the movie, Ricky Ta, <laughs> and, uh, which I love. That's 45 minutes into the movie, you get this, I don't even know if you'd call it a B story or a C story at that point, yeah. but like you go down this rabbit hole with Ricky Tarr and he's another pivotal piece in the yes. film and you're almost halfway through the movie, he hasn't even shown up yet. 
So it's really interesting how he structures this thing. And there's a, the other fascinating part about the structure of the movie is the end of the film. There's a sequence which sums everything up and it's done to a music cue. And the music cue is this song uh, I wrote it down. It's uh, La Mer, which is this French song, which the English equivalent is Beyond the Sea, which Bobby Darren sang. But the lyrics are not the same, by the way. Oh, it's they're just not. the music is the I, same. No, the, I, the oh, lyrics. Okay. Yes. I assume it's really it was the French version. Okay. Exactly. That's what I thought. But no. So they use this song, and it's a live version of the song for some reason, yeah. which I can't. It, and it's so interesting because they. They conclude the movie and they conclude all these storylines with this song playing. And it's a, you know, a five minute sequence or something. And it ends with a crowd cheering. And it's the end of the game. <laughs> he, he's won the game in a sense. It's really fascinating and offbeat bit of filmmaking. And it's in a different language. So we as, as English speakers, as Americans, we're, we're realizing that like, oh, this, we are aliens to this yes. world. And we've only sort of understood it on a certain stance. We can only interpret it through what we understand, which is Bobby Darren's Beyond the Sea. So it's a different, it has a different meaning for us. But for these people, it doesn't. It's this French thing that like has, to, it's totally different in meaning, even though the, the music is the same. It's just a fascinating sort of, cinematic flex by this alfredson guy who's just like hey guys fuck you here we go <laughs> right i'm i'm just dunking on you and you keep you're never going to get catch up with me you're never going to do it and so i just really really loved how they structured it how you're drawn into it how uh how the tension is built how the characters are built and how they don't use language they use visuals to portray things and, and and give you information the the use of perspective the it's just and there's just this weird it's there are times in the film where it gets really strange with this sort of almost sexual tension and it's between men and you're sort of like, oh, that's, it's very odd that there are these, there are these gay storylines that run through the film that are never commented on. No. And especially for the time, it was, it, it, you're sort of like, it's a little jarring because you're like, oh, wait, that's, oh, that's fascinating. And then you extrapolate from those scenes and you think back to scenes that happened before and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> What's going on? So Benedict Cumberbatch's character is a perfect example. Uh, Peter Gillum. Um, it's never fully explained, but he has some business he needs to clear up. Yes. So he can't be exploited. And he has maybe a relationship with a guy. We're not sure. But earlier in the film, there's this woman that he obviously had something with or she had something with him with. And it's like, there's so everything is a little drop in the ocean. You're like, what in the world? Every, everything like, isn't black and white and everything's thrown into. It's like it's like this is a giant puzzle. 
but they mixed three puzzles together and you got to find the puzzle pieces that matter to this particular story. Yeah. Which if you think about it, if I'm going to sit down to a puzzle, it's frustrating enough as it is. If you have, you know, if it's basically like a similar colored pattern, you know, picture on the other two, Oh my God. You're like, this has got to be the piece. It's not. You're like, Oh, and that's gotta be what the character was going through. And I think it's so fascinating that the director was able to make the audience feel what it was like to be a detective trying to solve this, yeah. uh, which I'm sure in real life is a very boring, very tedious, very confusing, you know, very much having to take pivots or like, okay, this is new information. I wish I would have had this a long time ago because then I want to went down this path. I'll go back to here. And I think it's kind of like a, not a real time, but, you know, shortening what it would be like in real time into a movie and then challenging people to be like, all right, you want, you think you, you can be, you know, <laughs> James Bond or, you know, saw all these things come with us and see what it's really like. And I think for a lot of people, they said, no, thank you. I'll go back to James Bond <laughs> and Mission Impossible. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really is sort of a, a thinking man's spy, uh, as the books are spy novels and, and spy film. Um, I'm trying to think if there's an American equivalent, there really isn't, uh, that I can piece together, but it, it's just fascinating to me that, the way the movie unfolds and the way that it's sort of, at least with me, it, it, it just drew me in um, to the world. And I think part of that is just, as we said, the, the art direction, the production design, the costumes, everything so, is just so spot on. And then you get into the cast. Which wait, is just, wait, 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 wait. Before we get into yeah. the cast, we should, we should probably save a cast till the end because it's, I mean, everything, I mean, talk about an all-star cast. Uh, this yeah. Movie. <laughs> but I want to talk about the craftsmanship and I have a hot okay. take that is going oh, to cause okay. you to Here we go. podcast. Oh, wait, let me hit the, the hot take button. Hold on. Woo, woo, woo. Yeah. Hot take. Hot take coming. This has never once been uh, uh, used to, to uh, explain this movie, but I'm going to compare it not in terms of the movie, but in some of, you know, kind of, I think what is interesting about this. So did you ever see the classic cinema masterpiece uh, Team America. <laughs> I did. Wow, this is a hot take. <laughs> yeah, I did see Team America. So what I think is interesting is Team America is obviously not a great classic cinema uh, <laughs> art house piece. However, what's fascinating is I, I work with quite a few puppeteers. And I know I've read quite a bit. And the, the cinematographer for Team America was the cinematographer that won the Oscar for The Matrix. And was he really? Yeah, and I think World Police came out 2004, 2005, you know, it was, you know, five, six years afterwards. And they, whatever, Trey and, and Stone or Parker Stone, I can't remember what their names are, but the creators of Team America, they were trying to figure out who to, <laughs> who to hire for their cinematographer. And one of them's like, let's just do a Hail Mary. Let's, let's call the, you know, the DP. And the DP immediately was like, I'm in. And they were like, wait, what? And he's like, I haven't shot a movie not on a green screen since The Matrix. He's like, you guys are building physical props. You guys are bringing in all these craftsmen that are going to build these beautiful things that then I can light. And these puppeteers were like working. And I think it's a similar thing where they went to these different departments. And it was like, we want you not just to make something beautiful. We want it to be lived in. We want it to be like we've, you know, spied. And I think they basically, this is like that job that every, you know, kind of craftsman, this is their 
own personal Academy Award because yeah. it, it, they were given the power to be like, you go make your masterpiece. We'll film it. And really only us will really understand what you did. But everybody who sees it in the industry is going to be like, wow, I tip my cap. You know, it's not a showy piece. And I'm going to give you an example. I think it was in, I can't remember where settings wise, what city it was in, but it was the scene where uh, Mark Strong was being interrogated. Yeah they, have this, yeah, they have this beautiful, it's this beautiful old um, wallpaper and they, the, the camera's dolling along yeah. and, there's, and there's these weird like marks on the wall that you can't, you, you can't tell what it is, but it, it's just randomly there. And so then you come around and it just, it's like, okay, it's kind of aged, you know, maybe, you know, they moved the couch and it rubbed against the wall. Your, your brain, somehow my brain's going into like, why is that there? What is this? And then as the scene plays out, they bring in this female character that's, you know, kind of in and out of the story and then something happens and then suddenly the gun goes off and basically, you know, her brains hit the wall. And at that moment, you're like, that's what all these stains are. <laughs> you know, they clean them up, but they don't repaint. They don't do anything. Yeah. It's kind of, they do the best they can. And if you don't know what this room is, you wouldn't think that's what it is. But I was like, oh my God, that was brilliant because they foreshadowed what it was, but they had the history of what was there. And just these subtle, I mean, it was like, oh my God, I just got goosebumps thinking about, you know, between the production design, between the art direction, between the director, all of this are like, this is your moment that all this work you put into it, all the thought was there, and this is gonna be your, you know, you can put this on your reel. <laughs> and, and it was there and it totally, totally works. And that's just one of many, many yeah. examples throughout the movie from different departments. Yeah, that and that is such a great shot because it does it, it dollies along and you see and the mark on the wall is it's this b sort of brownish yeah thing and you do you think like oh was there like <laughs> did did a couch rub against it or was like there a little electrical fire or something yeah or you, like you just can't put it and then it all comes together and you're like oh okay all right I got you. Um, but I mean, think, but think about the detail that that takes. They could have not had right. the blood on the wall or they could have made it look like blood so it was a tell right away that it was blood. They could have, you know, the blood could have been on the wall from the art direction, but then the director didn't choose to put the shot. I mean, for all of that to execute perfectly, they all had to have the vision and like, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to make another point in the safe house there at the end. What I love is a sound team. Oh, I was just going to say the socks. <laughs> Yeah. The sound team, because they had the main room where they came in, and so you you could hear the the real audio. Then yeah. you had the person upstairs listening through headphones, and that was the same audio, but it was processed through the headphones through the microphone. Then you had the main monitor room. So again, same information, but again, it sounds just differently because now it's not through headphones; it's through these little speakers. And they did this edit where they went from room to room to room as they were rehearsing it. Yeah, and it set up, and you're like. All these people have a different job. They're all hearing the same thing, but it's not really the same thing. And it was like the whole theme of the movie, audibly, in non-critical dialogue with none of the major action happening. And they found a moment just to be like, by the way, if you forgot what this movie is about, this is what the movie is about. And again, different department got to shine. And I was like, damn, well done. Well done. And just that sequence is so great. And then in that house, they he walks in and they've, they've established this throughout the film very subtly, but the footprints hearing, hearing people's footsteps. Yes. 
And so they, they've just established, and it's not a big deal. They don't hit you over the head with it. It's just like, oh, any other movie, when somebody's walking along, you hear the footsteps, that's fine. And, but in that room, George Smiley is there and he sees the wooden floor and he's like, ah, okay. And then he takes his gun out, he unzips the thing. We have this beautiful moment. And then the next time they cut to him, He's standing there in socks. Socks. Oh my God. I get goosebumps thinking about it now because it's so good. (laughs) It is so good. And what what I love is they've established subtly the the footprint or the footsteps and stuff. So then when you see him walking and now you know everybody's got guns, you know that the danger's in the house and he starts walking. And just as the audience, you're like, well, is that first board going to creak? And again, you don't know what's going to happen. But you yeah. start, the audience starts projecting all of this on there. And again, it's just a shot. It's all, you know, it's, it's right. like <laughs> drip, drip, drip. And, you know, he's got you dancing the way he wants you to. Yeah. It's so, it, yeah, it's just, <laughs> and stuff like that is so, it's so minute, but it's so detailed. And that's what makes it so, uh, so, so sort of delicious to, to be a part of and to witness. And uh, yeah, and, and it, the thing about this movie is that it's, it is it is a spy film it's it's a very in in an odd way it's a very conventional film yeah but it's told in an unconventional way and it's made very unconventionally and that's what i think draws me into it i do want to talk real quick about actually the cinematographer well you, you, you get that well you get him pulled up i'm going to also state this so another bizarre um uh, kind of tangent but uh, you know the movie titanic and our friend james cameron um, he was on Mythbusters, which I watched with my son. And it's fascinating because the end of the movie where, you know, the, if they can share the, the plank and, you know, Leo doesn't make it and stuff like that. What's funny is on Mythbusters, they go to test, you know, could they, because a lot of fans were like, well, they could have both gotten up on there and they would have been fine. And what's crazy is when James Cameron came on to Mythbusters, they did the math equations on how big the piece of board we need to be, how much it could sport, how buoyant it was, what the temperature of the water was, how long, so, like that level of detail into that scene to know where they could set it in that time continuum of when there were rescue boats there. So like people just watch it and they're like, oh, they just threw them on this and they did this. And you're like, no, the great, the great filmmakers, they go so deep into the details, so, so deep that they're so confident in any of the decisions they make they know what the ramifications are. They know what the character, because like if you're a spy and you're going to bring someone in and your life might, they've thought through this a hundred ways from sideways. And a lot of filmmakers will go and just be like, oh, we're just going to have them go here and we'll put the camera there and we'll do this. And you're like, no, the director has to know what the character will do. The, char- the actor needs to know what the character will do. They have to know how the setup will go. And so I think what's fascinating about this movie is everything has been thought out. They've gone through the rehearsals of what has happened in this room. Who uses this room? How often is it used? Who gets in alive? Who doesn't come out alive? And all of that is parlayed. It's all talked about. And I think, especially now, most modern movies, there is not that level of detail by every aspect. You know, the director, the actor, all the craftsmen. It's kind of like, let's just get stuff done. Does it look cool? Can we throw a light on it? Let's go. Got to move. And so I yeah. think that's why this is so unique, but I also think this is why these sorts of films hold up over time. So I'll let you go back to our, our, our DP friend. Uh, one, one last final detail about that scene <laughs> that we were just talking about, which I just thought of, is the lifesavers. So oh, him holding that. Like, yes. It right? almost looks like Alka-Seltzer. Yes, <laughs> or whatever he's taking. I don't, you know, it's Tums or something. 
and he has his role of, of whatever it is and the paper and it's he's he's like three two quarters of, of, of the way in or whatever and so there's all this paper hanging off and he holds onto it and he's fingering it with his sort of thumb and stuff and it's you have such a visceral palpable experience of that <laughs> and you're like shit don't knock one out yeah because <laughs> it'll make noise on the floor correct and yet it, and so it, it's just stuff like that which is just, i love it so the yeah, but I, cinematographer. I, I, I'm, Go no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on that because that's that's okay. what that's what this movie does is when you start thinking about it more. But the, I mean, who was that idea? Was it Gary Oldman to have that? Was it the director? And then right. convincing each other that this is a good idea, and then putting them in the right headspace, and then thinking about it from a directorial standpoint. How many shots? How many should he eat? When do I have it open? When does he close it? Does something fall out? And it's like. I can just see me talking with actors and be like, hey, by the way, hold that lifesavers things open. And they'll be like, why? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like actors don't just want to do what the director says. There has to be like a, yeah. like being able to describe, hey, when I edit, we're going to do this and the audience is going to wonder if it's going to fall. And then the person, you know, Gary Oldman's got to find a reason of like, why does he do this? And it's, it's a complex thing that once it's sorted, it works perfectly. But I mean, there had to be time. They had to have time to get there. And yeah. I mean, as a filmmaker... My God, that's my that's my dream. <laughs> Being able right. to work in that environment. Well, my dream in that situation is that Gary Oldman came up with it because that would be perfect. And then for a director to go, okay, well, let's shoot that then. Yes. As opposed to like Gary Oldman's just doing it in the scene, and you have. But like for you know, that, that would be my dream come true because so often you know directors are just like, no, we have to do this and that. <laughs> Fuck you. And it's like, okay, great. But like, it's just, it's, it's a bit of specificity that is just, it's just, again, delicious to It to is delicious. Indulge it in. Is. Good word. Um, Good word. Now, so the cinematography, we'll just touch on this briefly. The cinematographer is Hoyte van Hoytema, who is, I think I'm saying that right. He's a, a Dutch Swedish cinematographer who he did Alfredson's uh, film prior to this, uh, Let the Right One In. He, his work is, He's one of the best cinematographers working to today, if you ask me. His work is, uh, he did Her, Interstellar, uh, Spectre, Dunkirk, for which he won a Mickey Award, which God bless him. I mean, that's as good as it gets. Uh, Ad Astra, which he did last year, and he has uh, Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet, uh, this year. What I love about Hoytema, and I thought his work in Dunkirk and in Ad Astra were just spectacular just so well done um what i love about his work in this film besides obvious the the obvious mood setting and and the sort of color palette that they use to set the time period and all these things and the 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 light and the sort of lack of light the use of shadows and things which are all you know gorgeous but his framing and and the composition of his shots it's so well done and there's a sequence and this happens quite a bit, by the way, where they use curtains to yeah. obstruct a little bit. So you can see through it, but you can't see clearly. And I love how he uses that to accentuate the story and the mood that you're sort of, you're in it, but you can't see things clearly. And, and like, hmm, what are, what are we doing? And of course, the, the choice to switch perspective to go outside of a room and then back into it. All that sort of stuff. So I, I really, really love this guy's work 
uh, in general. But in this film, I just thought it was so, so classically done, um, just using the sort of foundational uh, uh, fundamentals of, of cinematography. And I'd be interested to hear what you think, because, you know, that is definitely your, uh, your neck of the woods up there. I mean, this, this movie is gorgeous in a way. I mean, I can't, I mean, it goes with the cinematography and the production design, but their main room with that orange background with the, I mean, every shot, every production still from that room is like, it's like the holy mother grail of like point the camera anywhere and it's gonna look beautiful but what i loved is there was so much of and again i don't know how much of this is the cinematographer versus the director but there was a lot of like profile shots and there was yeah. a lot of like off access where they would go behind someone's head and then someone would kind of peek out at a weird angle so it was not a traditional you know straight on three-quarter coverage for everybody there was a lot of like weird edges or weird head movements that either obscured or moved. And all that went back to the, again, the theme of the movie. You never, you rarely get full on clean. And what I love is like when Gary Oldman, you know, when he's thinking, oftentimes you get a straight on face, but then when it's like, you're going like what he's getting information from someone else, or you're kind of seeing that reenactment, the reenactments not always shot, you know, exactly the way it is. So, I mean, there's so much intentionality and I think this is one of those things that often in, I think cinematography some came, has come so far in the last 15, 20 years where almost the crappiest movies ever made are also beautiful. It's almost like, yeah. it's like you can kind of get, beautiful is almost like a standard now. But then what we've lost is why you do what you do. Yeah. And this movie, I encourage every young cinematographer to be like, literally freeze each scene and ask yourself why what does this have to do with the characters what does this have to do with the story why is this being told what is the audience supposed to be feeling from these choices and then ask yourself what would you have done and keep going back and forth that and so when you it's almost treated like a like a religious text in the standpoint of like if you think it's wrong you're wrong and you need to figure out why he was right (laughs) doing it right and it'll force you to kind of come up with different ways of thinking how to do it i know you sent me an article from uh uh, Roger Deakins and how he's lamenting now cinematography where you have second units or all other cameramen that are making decisions in these sorts of movies can't be made in group settings without a director or cinematographer that's spent months of planning. You can't just send someone out and have them be able to frame the shot or capture it in a way like this has to be so plotted and planned and understood and ground into your own brain. And I think a lot of cinematographers get too carried away with like, but this will look better on the actor if I light it this way, as opposed to, well, this will look fantastic, but look at how much better the scene is if we do it this way and we choose to you know, block it this way and have the camera going this way and we're only looking at this portion of their face. And I think that, that this is a masterclass in that sort of cinematography, which I think is becoming more and more of a lost art form. Yeah, and... A couple things I want to touch upon after that is, uh, yes, most films, you know, the, the art of cinematography, the craft of it has gotten, it's so advanced in the last 20 years or whatever. But using cinematography to propel the story and to enhance the story is still a, a very rare feat. Yes. Um, and it's interesting you talk about 
you know, how you do things and why you do things. Years ago, many, many moons ago, <laughs> I was studying cinematography at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And we had a guest lecturer come in and it was Gordon Willis. Who, oh, yeah, right. So just yep. ridiculous. Royalty. Great, Royalty. Yeah. One of the great cinematographers of all time did the Godfather movies, you know, all these things. And people were peppering him with questions about, oh, how did you shoot this? How did you shoot that? How did you do this? How did you do that? And I, you could see him becoming more and more irritated with these questions. And finally, he stopped and he said, you're all asking the wrong question. The question isn't how I did those things. The question is why I did those things. And I was like, okay, that's why he's Gordon Willis. This, this cat knows what he's up because we were all playing checkers and he's playing chess. Yeah. And that's the thing about this movie is Hoi Tame is obviously uh, visually very, very gifted, understands what he's doing, but it's why he does it. Not just that he does it, which most films, they can do it, but they, they have no why to it. And his cinematography in this film makes the film in so many ways because it it's the cohesive thing that brings together all of the other crafts and and it, it makes it all work so the way he lights and shoots those costumes and those sets and all of that stuff is what brings it all together and and now we're going to get into the, the creme de la creme of this movie the actor oh yes yeah so <laughs> this movie is like it it's just dripping with britishness it's just so british it's sort of you almost your teeth go bad watching it because the, you know that it's crazy so gary oldman is the lead now gary oldman i must confess is one of my all-time favorite actors um what makes gary oldman so interesting is he's a british actor he's uh came up with quite a class of British actors, which I will tell a story about in a little bit from another part of my schooling. Um, <laughs> so what's always made Gary Oldman interesting is he's a British actor who acts like an American. And right. what I mean by that is that he's a very combustible, chaotic presence in his films, whereas most British actors are very um, much, sure. much more calculating. Yeah. And much more contained. And he's always been very combustible. Um, which I think is is why he's so interesting. In this film, he he's sort of been in the wilderness in, in his career leading up to this. And in this film, he, he goes full-on British, and he contains all of that Gary Oldman-esque energy, and he puts a rap on it, and he gives this very subtle, very, very nuanced and complex British performance that is just jaw-dropping when you look at, again, the details of what he's doing. <laughs> yes. It, it's, he just, he does everything with a look. So you could go through every scene in this film and there's a scene where he meets with this former uh, colleague, a woman. Um, he goes up to, to, I think it's Oxford, and she's a, uh, working at, at the college and they have a discussion and she sort of flirts with him and you see the history between them and you see the way he looks at her that he's 
either he's regretful or ashamed of something and he wants to move on quickly. Yes. And she is, is wanting attention and everything. And he doesn't say anything. He says it with his body and with his eyes. And it's just like, it's so precise <laughs> and it's, it's such, it's, I, I just love specificity and detail and like he brings it and there are, there's one spot where he does, he raises his voice a little bit and it's, it's almost like you, as his mouth opens, you can see, you know, the depths of hell within this guy <laughs> that could possibly be unleashed upon the world. And it's like, holy shit. And it, it, he's just, he's fantastic. And I love this film because it sort of resurrected his career and he did get nominated for best actor. He didn't win. He ended up winning just a few years ago for playing Winston Churchill in uh, that rather forgettable movie. Um, darkest hour. But, darkest hour. Yeah. Which it felt like, uh, <laughs> the darkest two hours having to watch it. But um, I just love his performance. And it's just this layered, nuanced, complex performance that I just, I really love. I'd be interested to hear what you think about it. Uh, just him in general or all the actors? Just him in general right now. Then we'll dive into the rest. I mean, it's not his performance from The Fifth Element, if that's what you're getting at. <laughs> Um, the the if if there's a yin and yang, fifth element is the yin to this yang. Um, but I just think I mean Gary Oldman. It's kind of like when people talk about sports, and you know if you're talking about a best player like like in basketball, you know people could pick take a defensive guy, take an offensive guy, but you know every once in a while there's just someone who can guard every position, can play defense, can play offense, and just having them on your team they'll look at the rest of the team and just naturally find the way to make everybody better that's yeah. gary oldman as an actor like yeah. literally you can just put him in any movie in any role at any time with anybody else and he will elevate everything so he's he, he's not necessarily on the mount rushmore of actors but he's on the like oh my god if i'm starting a team yeah <laughs> yeah by any way shape or form get him on my team for this film yeah. because it will be better um, so his performance is, like you said, I mean, the whole movie is very British, which is kind of odd. I mean, a lot of British people, you know, people see him on a talk show and like, oh, I thought you were an American. So, <laughs> you know, I see that all the time. Like, I had no idea that he was from there. So they get all the best British actors kind of in one thing. They get a Swedish director to direct a book adaptation. And yet it feels as if it's everybody's grown up on the West End you know, of London and uh, they make, they make this British film. But what I love about Gary Oldman is there's a lot of heavy hitters. And even though he's top billing and like you said, he doesn't show up for 15 minutes, doesn't say anything for 30 minutes. He doesn't overpower. Like this is not the star turning role where he comes in and the world revolves around him. And I, I can't think of many actors. I'm not saying all actors want to be that, but if you, if you take a really great, you know, if you would have had someone like, let's say you would have had Jack Nicholson in his prime, it would have been very hard for Jack Nicholson not to bend front and center and the yeah. focus of attention all the time. And Gary Oldman can almost at times disappear enough where you can kind of shift and look away. It's not like you're forced to look at him, yeah. which I think is such a gift and such a testament to him as a human, but also to his acting skill and just 
kind of the character that he created, I will watch anything that he does. I just think he is, he's fascinating is the only word I will use. Just everything he's in, he's fascinating. Even if I'm not sure why the hell he was in the movie, I'm still fascinated. <laughs> I'm like, you, you, you just tell me Gary Oldman's in it, I'll, I'll watch it. I, uh, here's here's a, a few Gary Oldman stories for you. Um, so, again, many, many, many moons ago, I was studying uh, acting uh, in London at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because uh, I'm a fancy boy. And uh, <laughs> we all know that. We, yeah, we had a, a guest lecturer, uh, Mark Rylance, who came <gasps> and, yes. and taught a class with us. And uh, it was a series of classes that we did. And at the time, he was, I'm trying to, he was artistic director at, um, I think of the Globe Theater. Okay. Um, in London. Yeah, I think it's the Globe. And, um, you know, he, he's a, an alum of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And so that's why he was teaching class. And it was a great class. And, and Mark Rylance is this very, very soft-spoken, just the gentlest sort of soul you'll, you'll ever come across. A very, very nice, generous guy. And um, oddly enough, I think he was born in the UK, but then he, he moved to the States and then he moved back to the UK. So he was sort of American. And um, so he was telling a story about coming up in the uh, entertainment industry as an actor. Uh, you know, he's, he was born in 1960. And so he was just talking about like the early days of his career. And he was in an acting class um, with a bunch of people. And he started rattling off the people he was in class with. And he's like, yeah, you know, so I, I was in these classes and I, I'm good friends with, you know, Danny Lewis and, and uh, Gary and, you know, and I'm just like, Danny Lewis, what the fuck? And it's like Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> and so like Mark Rylance was in a class with like Daniel Day-Lewis and Kenneth Branagh and, and Gary Oldman. And he started telling stories about them, you know, very, very uh, friendly guy. And so he started telling stories about, they'd be in a class and they'd do a scene. And like Gary Oldman was like the guy that everybody was sort of, wary of in a scene because he was so dynamic and it was just this magnetic presence he was like an inferno on the stage it was like holy shit and and he was just an unnerving person um to be in a scene with because he was so combustible and then he said like you know then after class we'd leave and you know i'd be standing there waiting for a bus to come pick me up and um you know having a conversation with somebody and just uh, waiting for the bus and then I turn and Gary Oldman would be standing next to me and I wouldn't even notice it because out in the real world, he's just this tiny sort of almost invisible person who just blends into the wall. He just watches life go by. And I was like, that's kind of what he becomes in this movie. Yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly who he is in this movie. He, becomes, he played himself. <laughs> this yes. is an autobiography. He becomes this sort of watcher. And it's just so fascinating to me to hear that like that's the part of who he was as a young man that probably gathered all the information he used in his acting career, but then to play a part where, Oh, that's actually what this guy does. George Smiley is a watcher. I know who that is. And and so it's lesser performance than it is sort of um, uh, an experience for him. You know, just, 
it, he doesn't, there's nothing mannered about it. He's, he's more containing uh, parts of himself, which, which could be masks and taking them instead, taking the mask off, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Another very, very brief Gary Oldman story. Cause I love Gary Oldman. Um, a friend of mine from who I met at, uh, at RADA, uh, was an actress, great, great actress. And, uh, a great, great person, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, I don't know if I should use her name, but um, <laughs> her name's Kimberly and just wonderful human being. And she had a friend who was a huge, huge Gary Oldman fan. And so one day, just through happenstance, um, somebody saw Gary Oldman in a store. Okay. And so they happened to have, now this is years ago, so like people didn't have phones that they carried with them, but they happened to have a VHS um, camcorder camera in their car. So they go to the car, get the camcorder. They wait for Gary Oldman to come out of this, this store. And they say, they stop him and they say, Hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. But listen, one of my best friends is just, I'm a huge fan of yours, but she is the biggest, <laughs> biggest fan of yours. She loves you. She thinks you're so fantastic. She's an actress. She just loves you. Would you please do us a favor? It is her birthday next week. Would you just, if we tape you, could you just say happy birthday to her? To her? I can't remember her name, Anna or something. And Gary Oldman said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> and so he tapes a happy birthday message to this girl and they give the girl the tape for her birthday. And it was the greatest gift she ever got in her life. And she literally played that thing until it almost broke and she had to get copies of it made because Gary Oldman is such a great fucking human being. Now, is Gary Oldman a great human being? I've never met him. He certainly was a bit rambunctious in his youth. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Uh, but he's a great actor. And so I don't care. And hearing that story about him not being a dick to somebody who wanted to and he stopped and did this whole video for them. I was like, Gary Oldman's the greatest guy on the planet. I don't care what anybody says. So enough of Gary Oldman. Let's talk so about the rest of the You're going to have to check in the, in the podcast. We'll have a link to this happy birthday video that Mike will. Uh, well, no, I, I, have not seen, I have not seen it. That's a related story that I got. So the rest of this cast. So John Hurt, great actor. I mean, just ridiculous how good this guy is. Um, the late John Hurt. Um, another guy I really love is Mark Strong, who. His role Strong's hit and miss for me. Like some of his roles, he's really great. And then some of them, I'm like, you're just mailing it in. You just, you got the right look. You got the British voice and you're not really doing much with it. So he. Sure. I, I think both he and Cumberbatch can do that where they just yes. play on their Britishness and yes. they cash in the checks. But in this movie, I like Mark Strong and I just. I think do. He, he did he a does, great. He's so good in this. And. What's so interesting, he has a relationship with a young kid in this movie, which at first you think like, oh, wow, that's really <laughs> sweet. Yes. And after I've seen it a few times, there's something else I start to think about as I watch it. And it's that, what is he up to with this kid? Correct. I was thinking where that last night. Yeah, where you're like, wait a minute. Is, is this a, a sweet oh, this kid was just like me, he's a loner. And then it's like, wait a minute, is he just like me? He's a loner and I can exploit him? Correct. And it becomes very unnerving and I love how Strong never pushes too hard on any of that stuff. Never. He just lets it sit there and lets 
it reveal itself and you're like, oh shit, what is going on here? Now, I'm not a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan. I think he's actually really good in this. Um, I think Tom Hardy. I, I think you're not a big Tom Hardy fan. Um, um, I, what, the problem I have with Tom Hardy is everybody thinks he's the greatest actor known to mankind. It's like he, it's like he got overhyped. He's a fine yeah. actor. He's good yeah. in things. But he's not like God's gift to like acting. And I think he plays this part well enough. Like, you know, I don't yeah. think it's like, you know, go down in the annals of history for, you know, the greatest performance. But I think I, he did a great job. And I, I would have been very happy had I been working with him and what he was giving for that role. Yeah. Uh, the, the, two, the two people that I love that are in this movie that I don't think get enough credit. Uh, one of them, I, I think it's Kieran Hines. Yeah. Yeah. He, some, he sometimes you know, is too repetitive in how he plays it. But I think everything from his voice to his face to how he chooses to keep that restrained in the thought that goes on behind his eyes. I just, I enjoy watching him in just about everything. And the person I think is super underrated is Toby Jones. Yes. Yeah. He, he is so fascinating and he plays like he's, he's a little bit more like, uh, um, um, Oh my gosh. What's the, our, our lead actor's name is Gary Oldman, <laughs> Gary Oldman in yeah. the fact that a lot of times he'll play very you know smaller roles, but then he can kind of go crazy in some of his roles. And I just think he's a delight when he's walking away yeah. from that one scene. And it, and it, and it it's like, he goes from being like an equal to looking like weird and small, but then he grows in the frame, but he still looks kind of scrawny. Like there was so much conveyed in that walk toward the camera that I was like, God, I don't know who else I'd cast in a role like that. So I, I just think he's a delight to watch. Um, and then it, I'm, I'll be interested to hear what you think of this. Colin Firth. Um, Colin Firth is, <laughs> is really interesting to me because I have the hardest time figuring this cat out. And there are times when I think he is really great. And I don't say that lightly. So um, he did a film, I think he was nominated for it, called A Single Man. Yes. Um, Tom Ford movie, which is about uh, a gay man. And I think it's in the 60s or something in L.A. And it's an interesting movie. He gives a really remarkable performance in it um he also won i think best actor for playing the stuttering king in the, the king speech and he was yeah, really whatever. good in the king speech yeah um you know i could do without the king speech I, i'm okay oh no uh, I, I that movie i'm I'll, I'll defend that movie i i think it well was i i don't i don't need to feel sorry for some stuttering mumbling prick who you know it slaughtered the irish no thanks wait, so, wait a minute wait a minute are we talking see this is this is a problem i have with movies like the art form of the movie, like it's gotta be different than like what happens in real life. Unless I'm trying to be like, this is the, you know, the thing, this is art. This is like a fictitious. Right. Yeah. But, you but know, yeah, it's like, him hey, as a human being, I'm not defending. I'm saying the art of what they made with that movie and the story they told was really, really well done. <laughs> right. And I'm just saying, you know, Hitler was a good painter too. So let's, let's not. So we're going to make a movie showing the softer side of Hitler. That's what I'm hearing. Great. And they love dogs. <laughs> you know, it's like Hitler had a woman and, who loved him. Correct. Hitler and his dog Blondie. Or it'll be a great, it'll be a great movie when he's a kid or something. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, obviously. So Colin Firth is hit or miss for me. And, I thought he was actually really good in this movie because he was good enough 
that you believed he wasn't good enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's not as sharp as everybody else in this movie. Correct. And in the end you realize like, Oh, okay. I get it. Why he's not as sharp as everybody else. So it sort of worked to his advantage to be a little behind everybody else in terms of their crispness. Yeah. No, I, I, I happen to like Colin Firth. I think he's definitely uneasy, uneasy. I think the, one of the reasons I do like him is his choices for roles from everything from a single man to, you know, Bridget Jones's to, you know, the Kingsman, like he's like all over the map. Like yeah. He, he does not constrain, you know, for a, a straight laced kind of, you know, his, his career kind of started off with that stuffy, you know, yeah. <laughs> stuffy British guy. He's kind of all over the place. And I, I like the fact that he's like, you know what, I'm going to, if I'm interested, I'm going to do it. And I, I, I commend him for that. I don't think yeah, he's, he's the strongest performance in this movie, but I think it worked again with the ensemble. Part of the thing is, is not stepping on everyone else's toes. And I think yeah. he found his spot in his character and uh, you know, uh, that's what he was supposed to do. I agree. And I think the whole cast does that. They all fit into place. They're the puzzle pieces that, that do fit into place. And as a whole work as a cast, almost better than uh, it, you know, the, the individuals. Correct. This um, is definitely an ensemble movie. Yeah. Gary Oldman, he, he, even, even he, as the lead, does the same thing. He, he sort of uh, fits in. He, yeah. he, nothing, nothing stands out. So, um, All right, Barry. So here we are. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Any final thoughts for our intrepid listeners? Um, well, if you don't have a good idea of what my recommendation will be by now, we should stop this podcast because I feel like we covered it pretty well. My, my recommendation is, first and foremost, if you like movies and want to understand the craftsmanship of what makes a good movie, if you do not go watch this movie, you should then just consider having a different hobby because this is definitely one of the – if I was teaching a course, this is one of the movies I would force people to watch because it's that well done. But again – if you're if you got a if you got a glass of wine, you want to wind down and check out of the world, not think. Um, don't choose this movie that night. Wait for a night where you're uh, willing to get a little bit down and dirty. Um, but I, I, if you like any of these actors, you'll enjoy their performances. Um, if you just like well-crafted artisans working their finest, you're gonna like the movie. And if you want things like uh, DC uh, movies, like Batman and 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 whatnot, uh, this is not your movie for you. No, it's not. Um, here's what I would say. I would say, listen, if you've read any of the Le Carre novels, particularly the George Smiley ones, watch Wait, are this. You, are you saying that people that listen to our podcast are readers? I, I hope not. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't I, think that. I think that's the wrong group you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because every book right, every book reader I know, when they see a movie that's adapted from a book, 100 times out of 100 times, I hear the following phrase: "The book was better." So yeah, of you know, course, yeah. If you like the books, read the book again. If you haven't read the book, this you can read or you can watch instead of reading and feel smart. This is what I you was, did in, in school. This is I your Cliff Notes version. Something <laughs> interesting to do would be watch this film, then read the book, and yes. then watch the film again. That's what I would say. And even if you don't read the book, I'd say watch the film if you can. I know some people don't like to watch films more than once, but. Uh, watch this film and then maybe watch it again uh, a week later or something. I mean, we're in quarantine. It's not like you have anything else to do. So, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> uh, you know, 
<laughs> so just give it a shot. Uh, yeah, uh, this is, again, another movie I'm addicted to. If you can watch it and figure out why, God bless you and let me know what it, what it is. I, I, just, I just love this. It is. It's like you say, it's just, it's such a beautifully made film. It's everybody. It's it's uh, uh, everybody working together and and coming together and all these different crafts and skills just coalescing into a you know, coherent and and really uh, for me a very satisfying cinematic experience. Yeah, uh, well, and, and I think our our idea for the quarantine movies is everybody has the AFI top one hundred list. Like, if you just want to go back and you haven't seen movies that you felt like you should have seen, the idea here is to pick things that maybe wouldn't be your first choice. You know, maybe you watched and it was at a time of your life where, you know, you didn't appreciate but needs a second look or you missed it because you were busy with something else. And I feel like this movie is exactly perfect for that. You know, you mentioned it to people like, oh, yeah, I did see that. Or no, I missed that one. And it's now available. You got time. Go check it yeah. out. That's the whole exactly. reason. That's the whole reason we're doing this. This is it. They're just these sort of uh, off-beat path movies a little bit that are yeah, that are not totally too worth off it. Beat path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. they're, they're just worth it. Yeah, maybe you miss. All right, so I think that wraps up our uh, podcast for today. Am I correct, Barry? Yes, that's it. Perfect. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in uh, to Looking California Film Minnesota. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.